0: Experiment with a variety of art forms, engage in mindfulness, walking, and silent meditation, and discover a new and free-flowing creative vision. This workshop is for beginners and professional artists. Learn more at eomega.org thrive.
1: From Spirituality and Health Magazine, I'm Rabbi Rami, and this is the Spirituality and Health Podcast. Thanks for joining us. Our guest today, Judith Polich, is an environmentalist and a wetlands advocate. She holds a Master of Science degree in environmental studies and environmental education from the University of Wisconsin, and is the author of Return to the Children of Light, her newest book, Why We Can't Be More Like Trees, The Ancient Masters of Cooperation, Kindness, and Healing, is reviewed in the November, December 2023 issue of Spirituality and Health magazine. Judith, welcome to the Spirituality and Health podcast.
2: Thanks for having me.
1: Well, it's going to be a pleasure to listen to what you have to say because the book was a pleasure to read, especially because I am convinced, and I think you're convinced, that humans are in a desperate need of a new story about life and our place in it. And I was delighted to read in your book that, I'm just going to quote it to you, you, you write, a new story is beginning to surface, close quote. So I know we need one. You're optimistic that one is actually emerging. So what's the new story?
2: Well, first of all, it's a story that comes from science and new findings in science and also a relook at some of our spiritual belief systems. So it's a pretty big story. And part of that story is, I guess the main part of it is, recognizing our interconnection with all of nature, that we aren't just here as humans, separate from all the world around us. We're embodied in everything in our world. And that new story is telling us that We need to align our lives and our policies with this reality.
1: So how does it take a new look or fresh look at religious stories?
2: Okay, so we're actually quite a religious species. Most people adhere to one of our major religions. And there's a lot that has been taking shape in terms of the greening of our religions. One aspect of that is coming from the Catholic religion and from the Pope's guidance that he's done, like the Laudato Si' and his most recent one, in which it's really clarifying that our creation story is one of humans embedded in nature, in one holistic community, and we need to—that our job is to recognize we're a part of nature and— we have a unique responsibility to care for nature. So gone is the idea of us having dominion over nature. This is also reflected in Islam, and there are many, many green Muslims. And the concept is that in their religion is that the Prophet Muhammad encouraged thoughtful stewardship of water conservation and uh, avoiding wasteful consumption and advocated for the proper use of land and promoted compassion for all animals, and stewardship of trees, even. Hinduism is, of course, believes that everything is conscious and interconnected and divine. Buddhism is also greening with teachers like Gary Snyder, Joanna Macy, Thich Nhat Hanh, the idea of the interconnection of all things and interbeing. So, it's a gradual process. It's there. It's a big reach to policy, but these are the basis of our stories from a moral point of view. Science is another part of it, but that, but the two are coming together, and that's part of what I stress in my book.
1: Do you think science is the motivator, or would this be happening within the religions anyway?
2: I think the reality of our climate crisis is a huge motivator, and certainly the scientific community is. Doing everything they can to sound the alarm of the extraordinarily dangerous situation that we've created. So, and whether the Pope and other religious leaders are responding to that or to a deeper understanding and an attempt to clarify some misunderstandings that have come to us from various theological systems, I'm not
1: sure. I mean, it seems, you know, you didn't mention Judaism. Do you have any? Oh, yeah. I mean,
2: mean, basically, the Bible comes from older Judea teachings, and those teachings always viewed our role as a steward uh, of someone taking care of the garden of life. So there were misinterpretations that came further down the line from, and certainly some of them are still reflected in certain Christian teachings that are more apocalyptic, but those are very those don't hold the attention of a large number of people, let's put it that way.
1: So, I mean, it's interesting because, you know, we get different interpretations of sacred text. I mean, they do change over you know, over the centuries. Okay. And and I think it's, I mean, it's a chicken and egg kind of thing, I, which changes first, the, the consciousness. I don't think the texts change. I think the consciousness of the it, reader changes.
2: And the interpretation does as well, I believe. Right,
1: which that's what I meant. I mean, it's the, so, and then, then the, I mean, in a sense, reading is a kind of performance. You know, they, they read the text, people read their sacred texts from a different mindset and they see in it different things that generations before them didn't see because they had a different mindset than a current generation. So it's always, I would hope, evolving, though. I think you're way more optimistic than I am. But the new story, this, anyway, this is, this is how I really got it. This is what I got from, from reading Why Can't We yes. Be More Like Trees, is that the new story isn't simply a new reading of these ancient stories, but a new story that's emerging out of a new sense, almost a new, and I'm overstating it, I suppose, but a new revelation that science is bringing to human consciousness.
2: I think that's that's largely the case. And I'm not saying science is there yet, but because much of science is reductionist and that's necessary, but there's also a holistic perspective that is entering science, not just from the Gaia phenomenon and everything, but because we live in a really complex world and reductionism doesn't give us the answers we need we need to, we need methods to do with complexity because everything is really complex and we've created enormously complex problems.
1: Right. Right. You note in the book that the Darwinian principle of survival of the fittest doesn't seem to apply to trees. And I'm wondering if it applies to any species.
2: That's a good question. Maybe in given the times we live in a better way to think about that is survival of the most adaptable because that's kind of where we're headed. So competition isn't going to necessarily get us there, but learning how to adapt and interact and cooperate with others, multi-species, might just be the answer.
1: My understanding, and it's very limited, is that's really what Darwin had in mind. It was Herbert Spencer that came up with the survival of the fittest, not Darwin. Is yeah. Is that right?
2: I'm not exactly sure it's, it's, you know, and I can't really go back and determine what Darwin might have met meant, but obviously he recognized in plants that there was a, a, some very interesting things happening in plants that indicated um, cooperation and also possibilities for cognition that, that the he he was the first person who said that plant roots may be a type of brain. Uh, obviously, these things weren't widely publicized, but these came from him.
1: Yeah, and there's a lot of writing now about, I, I, and it, it maybe it's metaphor, but it sounds like it's more than metaphor. That that there is, oh, I don't know how, how to put it. Like plant roots are a type of brain. That plant that plants and trees are communicating with one another that they're warning here's an invasive species coming and the trees will warn other trees and the, the trees that are warned will uh, secrete something that will defend themselves against the, the invasion. Is that?
2: Yes. And it's not metaphor. This is based on science and yeah, the technologies I, that they have for actually examining what's happening under the ground. And beginning with the work of Susan Simone, who is a, a forest biologist recognizing the cooperation that appears to be occurring and the exchange of information through both the plant roots and the fungal kingdom, very breakthrough research that has to make us rethink a lot of things.
1: And yeah, that, that's not metaphor. I mean, I got I, what I thought was maybe metaphorical is using the term brain, but it certainly uh, is a sharing of consciousness.
2: Something's happening and it's happening within the root level. The, well, I think the word is sturm, or something. They, they find the same, a lot of the same electronic pulses and chemicals that we find in our brain chemistry. But I think we get into trouble when we start thinking of plants as having a brain like we do. And because it's nothing like that, and or t- intelligence like we do. I mean, they may well have an intelligence, but it's nothing like ours. And so we have to really get out of the box and broaden our perspectives on all of this.
1: Well, what if we broaden our perspective on what consciousness is or what intelligence is? So it, always, so it doesn't always have to be like ours.
2: Exactly. And that's why I kind of like the word I use in my I use the term that plants have smarts.
0: <laughs> yeah, right.
2: They may not have intelligence, or they may not have cognition, as but they have something going on. They learn. <laughs> there's all there's things that we need that can give us pause if we if we look at them. And then you use the term consciousness, which of course opens a very big door as we begin to examine what consciousness might be. And certainly it's not limited to the brain. It's not found in the brain. And there's many conflicting theories on consciousness right now. I don't think scientific community yet has a grasp on it.
1: Yes, and and we tend to be sort of reductionist about it, but we should be going the other way.
0: Exactly. Want to fearlessly explore your creative spirit? Join artist Susie K. Edwards for Path of the Butterfly,
1: so let me start away from trees. Let me, let me take a different, an example from dogs. Right? <laughs> so you have a, a, a wheaten doodle, is that what you said?
2: And they're called woodles, yes. <laughs> a
1: woodles, okay. And I have a golden doodle. So <laughs> I, if, if I have my science right, when I'm sitting with my doodle in my lap and we're just holding one another, both of us get a, I think I think we get a dopamine hit. Both both of us get this chemical reaction in our brain that make us feel what loved and relaxed and at peace and and we give this gift to one another just by being together right. physically bonding, right? Is that true?
2: Well, I think that would be many people's experience. I'm not sure if it's dopamine or if it's uh, oxytocin the same. Ah, thing that's as right. Pure no. Chemical that uh, mothers and babies will feel in almost all species, including maybe even dinosaurs.
1: Yeah, oxytocin, that was, that's right, that, that's my mistake, oxytocin. Yeah, the, the last time I had a dinosaur sit on my lap, I, it wasn't pleasant, but, but oxytocin. Now, my question is, I, and, and I just have to cop to being a little odd, I sometimes feel the same thing when I'm walking in the woods uh-huh. and I'm either hanging out with a tree or hugging a tree, or sometimes I talk to a tree. Right. So, do you feel that? I mean, I don't know if there's any, any science on, on that.
2: I don't know about the science on that, but I feel it as well. I feel that when I'm in a, when I can drop the stress out of my body, when I can come into being in presence. I can feel a depth of connection. And I don't know if it's in me or if it's in the trees or what I'm, or just the beauty, the extraordinary beauty of what I'm looking at. But yeah, there's, it's like there's a chemical change in my system. I mean, they talk about the vagus nerve, they talk about all kinds of possibilities and why some of us just like to hug trees and hang out in nature. But there's definitely something that happens that a shift that occurs. And in that shift, I think we become more centered, more holistic, and kind of dissolve our egos a bit.
1: Yeah, dissolve our egos. I I like that that language because you write in the book, you talk about humanity suffering from what you call the three Ds, like the letter D, disease, disillusioned, and disassociated. And it made me think of something Albert Einstein said i think in the 50s where he summarized the human condition as suffering from what he called a delusion of consciousness that uh-huh. separated the individual from other humans and other other beings other you know both mammals and plants and the earth itself yeah. that we just feel as individuals we feel isolated and then he said uh, if there's any hope for us we have to overcome this delusion by getting into this larger frame of consciousness, it sounded like disease, delusioned and disassociated. Well, and then you talk about using psychedelics as a therapy for this. Well, so, when I, when I yeah.
2: talk about there and when I'm talking about how nature heals us, it's I'm saying that it's very similar to how psychedelics may work in that our the main function of our cognition, the executive function, the thinking mind, the you know, the, the, the planning mind, the one that we're stuck in most of the time, is when we're in nature, that kind of softens and is suppressed, and the default mode mind arises, which makes us more connected and holistic, and that some of the research indicates that similar things happen when people are on psychedelics. In other words, the ego dissolving, feeling more connection with all things.
1: I want to think. I don't think this, <laughs> but I want to think this that nature knows, not the way we know, okay, to stick with that limitation, but that nature knows that humans are, are are diseased, disillusioned, disassociated, and that she has provided us with medicine, and the medicine is can be found walking you know with our animals, our animal companions, walking among our plants and the trees now that yeah and and getting that oxytocin hit and and overcoming this sense of of disillusionment and and disassociation but she also provides us with psychedelics now there was just a guy recently who took them and then got on an airplane and tried to crash the plane so i'm not suggesting that everybody run out and, and no yeah that's right i'm not suggesting people just run out and start taking magic mushrooms, but uh, that nature does provide, in a sense, nature is the source of the disease, but also the cure.
2: Well, nature provides everything. I mean, and frankly, the plant community provides us with everything that we have to exist on the earth, all of our food, all of our oxygen, everything. And so to think that that's just physical, I think is limited. I think it also provides for us spiritually as well as
1: you're suggesting. Uh, Yeah, absolutely. Which is so sad that certain kinds of religion get us away from the spiritual dimension of nature. I mean, there are certain religions that will say animals have no souls. And so they don't feel any pain. I think this Pope once said something like, some, I think some kid asked the Pope, did the, the little boy's dog or little girl's dog go to heaven? And the Pope found some way to say, yes, the dog is in heaven. And then theologians went berserk because dogs don't have souls. You know, there's a question in Buddhism, does a dog have Buddha nature? And they, they wisely don't really answer the question. I can
2: tell you, my prior dogs all went to heaven.
1: <laughs> yeah, so so I'm not one who believes in dogs. In, I believe in dogs. I don't believe in heaven. I believe heaven is when I'm I'm with my dog. That seems to be, especially you know,
2: when I, you're walking in a beautiful forest and you come to a giant tree and you can put your arms around it, right?
1: Yeah, exactly. I, I remember. I, I mean, I studied Zen for a long time, and a Zen master gave me that classic koan: "Does a dog have Buddha nature?" and and my snarky Jewish response was, that's the wrong question. The question is, was it the Buddha's nature to have a dog? <laughs> that to me is the was the more important question. Yeah. But you know, I'm I'm thinking of a of a situation where, you know, you're a pagan if you think that nature is alive with spirit and pagans are bad. And monotheism, you know, God is separate from nature. God is is the creator, but alienate from the creation. And I think the new story is one that sees God not, and and this is true in the Jewish, in Hebrew, God is a verb, not a noun, that God isn't the creator, God is creativity. And I won't go into the weeds with this, but one of the interesting aspects of Jewish mysticism is that through numerology, one of the names for God, Elohim, numerologically is the same as the word for Hateva, nature. So the commentaries will say, God in God is nature. Spinoza famously said, you know, God or nature. So deus sipe natura. So, so there, there's this blending, but we tend to be more, no, God is not nature, God created nature. I think part of the new story that's emerging to go back to where we started is this non-duality where God nature are not separate. You might believe, as I do, that God is greater than nature, but not other than nature. Where do you fall in that?
2: Well, basically, I'm quite influenced by Hindu beliefs and that everything has consciousness and that non-duality is real, (laughs) more real than duality. And so we need to weave our way back into a deeper understanding of that level of interconnection.
1: Yeah, I'm also very influenced by, by Hinduism uh, and, and I'm absolutely a non-dualist. I, I have a funny question to ask you. It's as I was reading the book, Why We Can't Be More Like Trees, Why Can't We Be More Like Trees? I was thinking this is the antithesis to Shel Silverstein's The Giving Tree book. Did you ever read that?
2: No, I don't know that
1: book. Oh, it's a horrible book if you take it At face value, I I read somewhere that this was, this is a complete satire and I hope it was because it's about a tree who is written about as a, as female and a little boy grows old with this tree and spends his life, um, exploiting the tree until she ends up as a stump in his old age. And she just gives of herself and gives of herself until there's nothing left of herself except this stump. And it's, it's just this, this parable of, of male exploitation of the, the feminine a, of of nature as, as woman. And, but I read, I hated the book until I read, no, it was a satire, you idiot. And he's, he's speaking against it, but it was so well done as, uh, and it was, it was presented as a children's book. And I was horrified and wouldn't let my kid read it, but maybe I was just being too literal. But your book is an antidote to that. It's, it's why can't we be more like trees? And when I was reading the book, uh, Christian Fiores, I'm going to quote him because you quote him. And it was, it was really interesting. You quote him saying, we are immersed in the most amazing transition that the human race has ever started. Forget gradual shifts. Forget linear changes we are in a world of exponential transformation, close quote. You then write, quote, it is a painful, challenging, and exciting time to be alive. We can do this. We can get it right. We just need to wake up and fully engage, close quote. (laughs) You are so optimistic, (laughs) and I am so pessimistic. So what makes you so optimistic?
2: It's Christiana Figueres. Yes, and What makes me optimistic is I don't have a choice. As a thinking person who loves the world, the world is a mess. I love it. I love nature. I think that this planet is the most extraordinary place. Awful, horrible things are happening. But I have to envision a positive future. That's just part of my belief system, Rabbi. It's a struggle especially right now with all the conflict going on in the world and the horror. But we have to hold on to the light of what's possible.
1: That is a perfect way to end the conversation. Our guest today, Judith Polich, is the author of Why Can't We Be More Like Trees? The Ancient Masters of Cooperation, Kindness, and Healing. The book is reviewed in the November-December 2023 issue of Spirituality and Health magazine. And I want to thank Judith for joining us on the Spiritual Health podcast. This was really interesting.
2: Thank you, Rabbi.
1: Spirituality and Health podcast is produced by Ezra Baker Trupiano, and our executive producer is Brenna Lilly. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a five star rating on your podcast app, and if you're not already a subscriber to Spirituality and Health magazine, please become one at SpiritualityHealth.com. From everyone at Spirituality Health magazine, we thank you for your support. I'm
0: Victoria Moran.